My global IQ is 109. Thank you for joining us for what will be a fascinating discussion with Gene Sperling. I'm Jim Falk, president of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. So Gene Sperling is an economist who fears not to question the methodology of his profession. His book, Economic Dignity, published this week, uh, would have always been an important read, but it's even more compelling now when you realize what's happened with COVID-19 and the uh, first responders. Uh, they truly do deserve economic dignity, and we'll be talking about that, of course, during the next hour. Gene served as director of the National Economic Council under two Democratic presidents, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. He also was the founder and director of the Center for Universal Education at the Brookings Institution. And now that we have extra time to binge watch old shows, you might be happy to know that he was a consultant on NBC's The West Wing. Gene, you've had a long day, but thanks so much for being with us. Uh, I'm honored, yeah, honored to be to uh, to be at the World Affairs Council in, in Dallas. Uh, uh, let's just start with what really was, in a sense, a driving force in your philosophy, and that was a speech that Martin Luther King gave um, in, when was it, 1968. You are demanding that this city will respect the dignity of labor. So often, we overlook the worth and the significance of those who are not in professional jobs, of those who are not in the so-called big jobs. But let me say to you tonight, that whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and is for the building of humanity, it has dignity and it has worth. You are reminding not only Memphis, but you are reminding the nation that it is a crime for people to live in this rich nation and receive starvation wages. So set the context for us about how that speech came about and, and what it meant to you. You know, what happens is that um, in Memphis, uh, two men in the prime of their life uh, Echol Cole, who was only 36, and Robert Walker, who was 30, are crushed to death by a defective sanitation truck that people had warned of the problems. And so they're killed, and there's no compensation for them. There's no compensation for their family. And here are these sanitation workers, almost all Black men, who work so hard and feel so demeaned by the way they are paid and treated, and even the refusal to fix uh, defective trucks and then seeing two deaths and two families left without any support. And so on February uh, uh, 12th, 1968, they go on strike. 
And when you talk about the dignity, uh, the first signs they make to kind of greet the civil rights leaders as they come. And, and before King, you know, a uh, uh, couple of his critical lieutenants like Roy Wilkins and the amazing Bayard Rustin had come and they make signs and their signs don't go, I want more wages or I want this. It says, I am a man. And, the, and it has, and this is, people have said to me before, well, you know, isn't dignity something you just feel? And I always say, those men, uh, those men felt uh, dignity. Uh, they felt they were dignified people. They felt they were dignified workers. Their lack of dignity came from how they were, were treated. And so King comes and he, uh, uh, he speaks earlier. He comes, uh, 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 but on March 18th, he comes and it's quite a thing. He packs, there's 25,000 people that end up uh, um, packing the uh, Bishop Charles Mason Temple uh, in Memphis. And it's where he says a line that is repeated very often by people. He says, uh, all labor has dignity. And he says it a couple of times. But the line he says that kind of leads up to that is really what's so powerful this moment. He says that um, uh, one day our society will come to respect the sanitation work if it is to survive. For the person who picks up our garbage in the final analysis is as significant as the physician. If he doesn't do his job, diseases are rampant all labor has dignity. And that notion that the, uh, that the sanitation worker is as essential as the physician, has there ever, you know, I think that would have always sounded like an ideal to people, unfortunately, but not at this moment. At this moment, we are suddenly forced to confront that people we rely on to feed ourselves, to care for our loved ones in their final days, to raise our children in their early days, are among the most essential people in our lives and treated as anything but essential. A farm worker makes $12 to $14 an hour and 50% uh, uh, of them don't have health care. It's kind of stunning that 47% of nursing and home health aides not only make around 12, 14 an hour, but just think they're in the health procession and 47% of them cannot take a day of sick leave for their family. You think about people who care for people's children. You know, what does it say that less than one in 10 could take a week off paid to have for their own child? And I mean, this is really, you know, so powerful. And so the thing I wanted to, also quote from King there, is that a lot of people tend to say, well, you know, yes, we should respect the dignity of people. And who doesn't get choked up seeing the applause and the cheering for people as they go to work. But, you know, King also said in that same speech, what good is it to win the right to sit at an integrated lunch counter if you can't afford to feed your family? And I feel that for these essential workers, I know they appreciate the applause, but when we do not ensure that they can raise their family with dignity themselves, when they are ordered back to work at a meat packing plant or something without assurances of their, uh, of their safety, 
then I do think that they are, uh, uh, we're denying something essential uh, about their intrinsic value. And so the real moment for us on economic dignity is not just whether we respond now and make sure we have the PPE and the hazard way, uh, pay and expand a bit of paid sick leave for the COVID crisis, but whether it makes us step back and say, why was it ever acceptable for us to allow people to be treated so poorly economically? Why were these jobs never considered essential? And so a main part of the book is to say, for people who work, who contribute, who do their part, shouldn't we be able, understanding there'll be differences and people will make more money and some people have nicer houses, but shouldn't we be able to say that everyone who's serving, who's essential, is treated that way and can raise their family with a degree of dignity and to not just put food on the table, but be at the table. Before I ask this question, I, I read today that Martin Luther King almost did not give that speech because he was feeling quite ill and he was un, un, uncertain that he would be able to even stand and, and go. And just think how different that would have been if, if he had not uh, given that speech. Well, you know, he gives that speech on March 18th. And so we all know that uh, they then did a, um, a, a protest that turned, that ended up having some violence take place. And so he does, he wants to come back. So he gives that speech March 18th and he comes back. And that's when he comes back to the same place, city, and he gives the April 3rd speech about, I may not live, but I've been to the mountaintop and he's assassinated the next day. So the fact that this is probably the last, you know, one of the two last major speeches he gives of his lifetime, uh, I think is just very, very powerful. And it's a reminder that lunch counter comment that him and, you know, yeah, I think you showed a picture of Bayard Rustin, who was the uh, brain, who brainstormed the 1963 March on Washington. They both had this message very strong that they wanted to fight for dignity, they wanted to fight for civil rights, but they also didn't want to let people off the hook. And that's one thing that disturbs me a lot is I hear a lot of people say, well, I'm for the dignity of work. I believe we should respect everyone's dignity, but they're okay on some people making $8 an hour uh, and some people not being able to have basic health care for their family. So take a few minutes and talk about what you call the three pillars of economic dignity. You know, I should start by saying that, you know, I, I didn't really start with, I want to write a book about dignity. What I started with was that I've been in the national economic debate for a long time, you know, since I worked for Governor Mario Cuomo and, uh, you know, when I was, you know, 29, 30 years old. And I felt that the people I worked with always were pure of heart. We fought for economic justice, but I've, I do feel that there's something about the, the, the nature of economic dialogue that kind of takes your eye off the ball. You focus on metrics. What's the GDP number? And then someone says, no, let's do a better metric like median wage. And these things are all important. I'm not dismissing them, but it becomes too easy for people to spend their lifetime in economics or economic policy or citizens who are concerned and never step back and say, what is our actual ultimate aspiration? And I think part of it is that people, they wanna be rigorous, they, but it's not about rigor, it's really about the precision and measurement. But 
that's not really how we should live our life. I mean, I would say the most important thing in my life is finding a loving life partner and the love of your children and your family. I can't put a price tag on that, but I think it's important that one understands that perhaps family or caring for family or love family is your number one thing. And I found that you really can start taking your eye off the ball uh, and you can be like, you know, are you a progressive or a populist or a centrist or, you know, do you believe in that policy or this policy? And you get all of this debate about things that are actually not your end goal. They're kind of means to an end. They're proxies for some aspiration. And so when I decided that I wanted, when I left the Obama White House, to step back and say, what should our ultimate economic aspiration be? Uh, I felt compelled by dignity and the power of that Martin Luther King had used, the power of um, the power of Mario Cuomo's 1984 speech where he talks about the struggle for dignity as part of the defining American economic struggle. But I felt like to actually have something be the economic North Star, the ultimate goal, you know, it couldn't just be dignity, liberty, freedom, where you just say a word and you leave it undefined. And so I set out to say, what is that definition that is complete? And so the three pillars I can't come, come to, which I think are essential, is one, do you have the capacity to care for your family and ensure that economic deprivation never prevents somebody from enjoying that which is most equal in our joys and meaning in life. If there is one great equality in life, to me it is that whatever your economic station or riches or however lucky you've been, you know, there's few things that compare to being there to care for your your parents in their final days, the birth of your children, the, the seasons of life. And it feels like, shouldn't we be able to ensure that quality for everyone? And the reality is, we don't. Economic deprivation, uh, you know, prevents many people from enjoying these things. I, right now, many of us are struggling with the idea that we can't be there for our parents in their final days. We may not see them again. Uh, and this seems like a unique issue to a lot of people in the upper middle classes. But for people who can't take two weeks off because they don't have paid leave, this is probably a much more regular uh, occurrence. But secondly, I felt that often when people put forward dignity lists, they often would talk just about those aspects of housing wages and not realize a second pillar, which is that we all have really an intrinsic desire to pursue our purpose and potential. And that our country's ideal is not only that you have a real first chance, but that you had second and third chances. I, I mentioned in the book, that we were the first country to get rid of debt prisons, to talk about uh, a fresh start for people in bankruptcy. And of course, none of this was applied to African-Americans, but that ideal that everybody should always be able to pursue their potential is so important. And yet, we're so bad at it in our country. And then third, and this is crucial, is that that whole, those first two pillars come tumbling down if you do not have protections to ensure you can work with dignity, work with respect and not domination and humiliation. Because if your pursuit of putting food on your table uh, or pursuing your career cannot be achieved without subjecting yourself to abuse, sexual harassment, violence, humiliation, 
then, then our whole structure of, of economic dignity tumbles. And so those are the three pillars that I put out as our North Star. And then in the book, I try to, and I assure people, it's a different kind of economic book. It's wonky at times, but it tries to take these principles and walk through in a way that hope that, you know, you don't have to be an economist to understand how this might make you think of our criminal justice system or the segmentation at work. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. Let's bore down on something you just said a few minutes ago about how the United States was one of the first countries to get rid of debtors' prisons. But in the book, you have a number of anecdotes that really show in a sense we've gone back to that. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's interesting. I think when I started the book, I was really thinking a lot about um, how little we do to give second, real second chances to people mm -hmm. who suffer major dislocations, economic dislocations, factories, communities, uh, people subject to perhaps addiction or long-term unemployment. But, you know, as I was looking at the criminal justice system, it just struck me over and over that we've actually gone from the first country to get rid of debt prisons to kind of using our criminal justice system to recreate debt prisons. And they're kind of virtual debt prisons, but actual real debt prisons. And what I'm talking about is the degree that local governments finance their criminal justice system by essentially criminalizing poverty, by putting fees and uh, cost for you know, going to court, all these things. And these things, sometimes it's virtual imprisonment. A person can't escape. They can't get a second start because they owe so much money. But what's just striking is you have people who leave prison or get involved in the criminal justice system. They're trying to get a second chance and they're actually arrested for not being able to pay the fees, which then keep, puts them back in prison and makes it impossible for them to get a real second chance. And that's just to use the word criminal. I mean, it's just terrible. And, you know, and that's why I wanted to go back and say, this is not our ideal. We are the country that likes to hold up the guy who's failed in five business and succeeded, the people who went west, the people who came to our country. We were the ones, you know, when you look back at that language on the debt prisons, it, it is a bit spiritual. They say it is wrong to deny a person their ability to move forward. And we have an entire criminal justice system that is almost designed to not actually give people a real second chance and to actually use, in, increase their debt in a way that either virtually or actually imprisons them again. One of the things too that I found interesting about your, your, your book was especially now when we're seeing these incredible job losses, you know, second to the Great Depression, and we may surpass that before we know it, about how different countries handle layoffs. 
And so I'd like you to, you know, we, we hear all the time about Sweden being a socialist country, at least in the sort of the rhetoric right now in the height of the campaign season. But Sweden really has a very different approach to handle job losses. Well, one of the things, and this is something that I really felt in my heart in when we were going through the, in the Clinton White House, and then went through the frustration of seeing this again, uh, you know, you know, in, in the last decade when I was, you know, had a chance to be at the, in the White House again, which is we don't even really have tools in our toolbox to prevent vicious downward economic cycles. So when a company leaves a plant or if their economic trends or automation, we don't even, we just sit back and say, yeah, it's too bad. I mean, we really do. And so the community cycles down, the revenue goes down, more people lose their jobs, they become depressed. It's this very, very negative cycle. And we saw it so much in the last decade, but it's always existed. And so, you know, you start looking around and saying, does it have to be that way? And you look at other countries, and I was struck by some of the work strategies in Sweden, where they would go to you and say, looks like your job might be on the line and let's work with you now, like while you still have a job, before the downward cycle, before you worry you're gonna lose your home, let's work with you now. That's a huge psychological difference, it's a huge economic difference, but right now, nobody has an incentive to do that. The company doing the layoff isn't gonna feel they can spend huge amounts of money for you to go get another job. The government doesn't do it. In Sweden, it's often part of a, a collective bargaining negotiation, though the government has greater policies. So I wanted to say this notion that unemployment has to have such a vicious uh, impact on people's lives is not something that is just preordained. It's a policy choice. And look, lots of us lose jobs at times, and it's tough for a few months, and you get on your feet but we still allow people to suffer more from losing a job in our country than anywhere. I remember the former prime minister of Australia saying, nobody in Australia likes to lose a job, but they don't feel they're gonna lose their house and their health care, and their whole life will go down. And that's a perfect example. We're just looking at somebody's median wage over 20 years, doesn't tell you much about their economic dignity because if at one point there, they lose their job and can't keep their house, can't provide health care for their children. Their entire sense of their capacity to care for their family uh, uh, can be completely devastated. So I think you know part of what we need is a new social compact. And it's not a big socialist or radical agenda. It really is about honoring the sense that those who contribute, those who do their part, those who suffer because either the accident of birth or the accident of the economy or being in the wrong place at the wrong time, we should, we should help them stay on their feet and get a second chance. And of course, as you're thinking, that's never been more relevant than it is today. So what do you think about the way the administration and Congress now are handling these different bills to, to support workers who have lost their jobs right now? Well, you know, I think there have been some some positive things, but I think overall, it's hard to label it uh, a success. Um, I think the idea that when you're going to have 20% unemployment, that you try to give people 100% of their wages 
is a good strategy. Yes, in normal times, you want to give, make sure there's an incentive to go out there and find a job. But if you just tell 30, 40 million Americans they're going to lose their job by government edict or pandemic, our goal should be to keep them whole. And we should be extending unemployment, not by an arbitrary date, but like how long it's needed. I mean, if, if, if we have unemployment that stays over 10% for a long time, we should help those families at least be able to support themselves, at least be able to pay their bills, to not go through this downward cycle just because they happen to be an employed person in the wrong industry in a pandemic. Um, I think the places we have really failed so far is in helping our state and local governments and actually helping to keep the small businesses afloat. And I think the small business part is, is a bit heartbreaking because the concept of the PPP, as it's called, was that we were going to say to that restaurant owner, hey, you keep your employees on your payroll. We'll, we'll loan you the money. And if you use it to keep your employees whole, keep their health care, keep their payment, we'll forgive that. We'll essentially let you be the one who provides that full paycheck for them. And so that your company stays afloat and you have money to kind of pay the rent and those workers stay afloat so that when we do find a health solution, when we do find a way to open up, we have the testing, the confidence, the creativity to bring people back to work in a safe way. Uh, those families haven't been hurt. They haven't downward cycled and we didn't close businesses unnecessarily. And it's a bit heartbreaking because the way it was set up, it, uh, it, it really allowed for unjust enrichment. It didn't focus on the people who really needed those to protect jobs. And so what happened is the banks went out and said, well, you know, if you're a client, if you're a customer and you bank with us and you borrow from us, then, then we'll put you at the front of the line. Well, look, this is like a, this is like people are drowning and you've got life preservers. You're not going to, you're not supposed to sit there with a life preserver saying, Hey, do you bank with my company? Oh, well, too bad. And that's what's happened. So when you see this job number today, 20 and a half million jobs, and it's worse. These numbers are an underestimation. It's going to be even worse in May. It is a fail. It does reflect the failure of us to have an effective program. And what breaks my heart is that there is going to be a lot of small businesses that will close. Those jobs will never come back. And they were viable businesses with, with that could have stayed afloat if we had just had a more effective economic uh, strategy for them. Now, Gene, you've said twice, uh, you've used the word wonky. And I want to be sure that our viewers know that one, I'm not an economist by training. And I found your book very interesting. And I even understood a lot of it. So uh, do want to encourage people to pick up a copy of your book, because I think there's no question that COVID-19 has accelerated the need to have a lot of the discussions that, that you raise. I know you're going to be working hard this weekend promoting the book. Stay safe. Thank you. And Jim, I appreciate how carefully you read the book, how thoughtful your questions are. And oh, thank you. Have a great weekend. Stay well, and I'll see you next week.